Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, December 17th, we're studying Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. The prophet declares to God's people that the long-promised ruler and shepherd over Israel will come from that little town, the little town of Bethlehem. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Flamey. Pastor Flamey serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamey, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it's great to be back. So, Pastor Flamey, Micah chapter 5 comes before us today because it is the Old Testament reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent in Series C of the three-year lectionary. It's the only text from Micah that occurs in the season of Advent. So we haven't looked at it at all during this series Give us some context then. What do we need to know about Micah, the prophet, and his ministry as we prepare to look at part of chapter 5 today? Yeah, so I, I think we can say a handful of things about Micah. First of all, uh, the prophecy was published in its written form sometime around five or 725, and I think it's a recapitulation or sort of a paraphrase, paraphrase or summary of his preaching that took place over more more or less around a decade, so 735 to 728 B.C. Uh, he would have been preaching during the uh, co-regency of King Ahaz and then during co-regency of Ahaz and Hezekiah together. And this is happening before, and this is important, I think, before the destruction of Samaria that is yet to happen. And that, of course, happens in the year, at the hands of the Assyrians, at the year 722. Uh, the occasion of Micah's prophecy, what, what, what brought this up? It was probably the great apostasy of Judah and also Samaria during the, the reign of the wicked king Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16. You can read about that. In fact, it's a pretty wild story. Ahaz is so wicked that he kills one of his own sons uh, uh, in sacrifice to the false gods. And he hankers after idolatry. He just, he loves it. And in fact, he, he uh, came to compact with the Assyrians, you know, which is a bad idea. Uh, it says, hey, let's crush Israel between us, please. And, you know, the king of Assyria says, okay, that's great. And so they do. They go to war. They crush Israel. And and then uh, Ahaz goes to Damascus to meet with uh, the king of Assyria. And there in Damascus, he sees all oh, this beautiful, gorgeous, wonderful pagan temple. And he said to and he says to himself, man, why don't we have this stuff in Jerusalem? Uh, the temple there is nothing compared to this. Solomon didn't know what he was doing. And so he sends word back to uh, to his uh, high priest Uriah and says, I have new directions for you. Tear down all the old stuff. Put in all this new pagan stuff. We're going to revamp the, you know, the, the liturgy. We're going to revamp the church. We're going to make it look new and spiffy to compete 
with all the cool pagan sacrifices that they're making. Uh, so he is not a good king. He's very, very bad. And it helps to uh, set the tone for Micah's prophecy when you read it, because Micah comes out at the beginning of his prophecy, well, fist punching. Uh, the, the, the wickedness of the priests and of the kings and of the prophets, he, uh, those three offices are in his crosshairs. And he wants them to know that because their apostasy together, the king, prophets, and priests, is so terrible, that destruction is going to come. And so Doug Judish, uh, the Old Testament scholar, <laughs> it's kind of funny. So these prophetic books are of, uh, of the, uh, of the minor prophets, they are, you know, examples of preaching during this time. Now, uh, Tim, I think that you and I, when we went to seminary, we were always told gospel themes, right? If you have a gospel theme, then that'll help you to write a gospel sermon, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, so. This is, according to Doug Judas, the, the theme, the theme of Micah's prophecy. It is Samaria and Jerusalem are doomed to destruction. Period. <laughs> so, did, did Micah not go to the same seminary we went to? Is that what you're saying? Probably. <laughs> but now, now, of course, does Micah preach a law and gospel sermon to his people? Yes. But the outward kingdoms of Israel, uh, which encompass the land of Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, their apostasy, their unfaithfulness, their, their uh, worship of the demons through idolatry was so great that their earthly outward kingdoms would be taken away. And even though the, the people there thought they were blessed by God and that God had given them promises that they would never lose the kingdom, they had confused the, the messianic prom promises with promises for earthly land and earthly kingdom. Uh, and, and, and so because of that, they had no ears for the law. Uh, they were the original, original antinomians in that sense. Uh, they thought that they could carry on with whatever sort of uh, lifestyle that they wanted and mixing together Yahweh worship with the worship of the false gods, with even participating, and Micah makes reference to this in his prophecy, with even in participating in the cult prostitution of the false gods, right? Despising their, their wives at home because of that. They thought it would be fine. Hey, we're Abraham's seed. Nothing can happen to us. And that's why the Lord had to send men like Isaiah and Amos and, uh, and Micah to this generation to preach to them, no, you are going to be destroyed. Your external kingdom will be taken away from you. But the true spiritual kingdom of Christ will come. And that is, of course, a kingdom not of the sword or of uh, borders that you mark out on a map, but a kingdom of God's grace and the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. And what's great is that Micah gives to his hearers by the end of the prophecy, uh, which is in, which is basically the last two chapters of Micah. Uh, uh, there, there's this uh, this dialogue between the Lord and between Israel, and it, and so the image is that Israel is in chains and and uh, stripped and dragged before the Lord's judgment court, right? And the Lord, you know, uh, speaks, he, he speaks condemnation against Israel because of sin. And Israel, of course, looks up to the Lord and then it, it confesses, learns to confess sin. And by the end of this exchange, going back between the Lord and Israel, you have sweet words of forgiveness and mercy. Some of the best and sweetest words of forgiveness and mercy uh, for sinners that you can find anywhere in the Old Testament, that's how Micah's sermon concludes. Like a good Lutheran, I might add, with a you, you know, 
the gospel predominates, of course. Uh, and it, it, and so, uh, where I'm going with this is that, is that even though the earthly kingdom is taken away, the spiritual kingdom of Christ is coming and no amount of sin and shame can stop him. Uh, and that's why, uh, the, the, this, uh, central passage of, uh, Micah chapter five, uh, verse two is, is, is so wonderful because it shows us, uh, because it shows us that the, so uh, certain is the promise of the coming spiritual kingdom of Christ that there is a time and place, not a time, I'm sorry, but, but, but uh, a place specified, right? That's, that's this, uh, the promise is so certain that the Lord has commanded everybody's eyes to pay attention to uh, uh, Bethlehem. When you say that this is a, a central text in the book of Micah, do you mean thematically in terms of like space that comes before and after? What what makes this a, a central text? Uh, okay, so it's, so the, the the preaching. So you have uh, Micah starting off with hard preaching of law in chapters like one and two, and then uh, let's see. I'm trying to find it. Yeah, here in in chapter four though, you have the beginning of the preaching of the spiritual kingdom, which is Honestly, the New Testament church, the church that Christ founds by his word and sacrament. That begins at, in chapter 4, and it gains definition. This is Zion, uh, the, the mountain that is rising up higher than all the mountains, drawing all the people to themselves. This is an image that we, we find in Isaiah's preaching. Micah is paying attention to Isaiah. Isaiah is probably paying attention to Micah. They're preaching uh, in such a way that they sound like one another. And... Uh, and uh, we hear about the peace that characterizes the peace that characterizes the messianic New Testament kingdom. And the Lord says that he's going to assemble the lame, gather those who have been driven away, just like Jesus says in the parable of, of uh, you know, that after the sons of the, of the kingdom refused to come to the wedding banquet, he tells the servants to go out and to gather those who are poor, blind, crippled, and lame. And even then, when they, the, the, Banquet hall isn't full. He says, then go either to the highways or the byways. I will fill up my banquet hall. That is, that is a, a, a repetition of the same image that's put forward in Micah, right? And then from there, from there, and hearing about how the nations are assembled around the Lord, the Gentiles are coming to the Lord to worship him in faith. Uh, you hear about the central figure of that kingdom who brings it all about, who is uh, the, Davidic, the, the coming Davidic king, unlike the wicked kings that Israel and Judah have to suffer then. Uh, so this is uh, the son of David who will sit on his, his throne and reign eternally that we heard about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, uh, and, and so Micah says, don't put your hope in Ahaz, right? Or put your hope in the treaties that you're hoping to, to uh, you know, or put your hope in treaties with uh with Assyria. Instead, put your hope in the king who is to come, who is going to give a spiritual kingdom of forgiveness and peace. And, the, and this is the thing that's probably the most confusing for the ancients. Uh, the spiritual kingdom uh, comes here in, uh, it comes in a tangible, in a very tangible way upon this earth because uh, Bethlehem is where he's going to come from, this ruler in Israel, you know. 
It's quite something that these times of great wickedness for God's people are the occasions for these fantastic promises. You, you mentioned the overlap with Isaiah and Micah and King Ahaz. I mean, Isaiah yeah. deals with King Ahaz at great length. We're going to look at that text in a couple days here on Sharper Iron, Isaiah 7, where's that, where there's that confrontation between Isaiah and Ahaz and Isaiah speaks the promise of Emmanuel that the virgin will give birth to a son. And, and here you've got Micah in the same context dealing with this time of great wickedness and unfaithfulness from kings, prophets, and priests alike who speaks now of, of such specific promise that the Savior is going to come from Bethlehem. And we can think of some mm. of the texts from, we've looked at texts in, in Jeremiah and texts from uh, Zephaniah and other, other prophets as well who deal in these times of, of wickedness as well. What, what is it about these times of great wickedness that the Lord is, is at th those moments prophesying the coming of Christ? Well, the best law is for the best gospel. <laughs> now, now, let's face it. I mean, as, as terrible as things become on this earth, right? I mean, we might fool ourselves into thinking that we had a good kingdom at one point. It's kind of like listening to folks say, well, the country used to be sort of a decent country that we lived in 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, but if anything, uh, the, the, the shroud of decency that you put over the corpse, <laughs> because the sin in this world is so pre prevalent and so corrupting, right? It's torn away in those times of great wickedness to the point where you see there is no hope and there is no uh, salvation offered by these by these earth, through earthly kingdoms and earthly rulers and earthly powers, right? And so, and so as that, that particular truth becomes especially clear, I think it's fitting that the Lord would give the matching words of salvation, especially to the remnant of Israel who are despairing over what's coming upon the world. Here the Lord remembers his remnant and he comes to them with the best mercy and grace and peace that he possibly can, which is, isn't a worldly rescue from worldly corruption, but heavenly rescue and the promise of forgiveness and righteousness and resurrection. Let's see what Micah preaches then in Micah 5, verses 2 through 5a. The prophet writes, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That is the text for today, Micah 5, verses 2 through 5a. Pastor Flaming, I think those opening words are fairly familiar. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, take us just into those two names, Bethlehem and, well, Bethlehem, maybe we know what that means. Ephrathah, uh, that's a, an unfamiliar term. What, what's the, I mean, just take us into that, right, that very first line. Yeah, you've got it. So Bethlehem uh, is, in Hebrew, literally the house of bread, right? And I think that even Ephrathah has to do with like a, a place of flourishing. Uh, but it, getting away from the etymology of those words, they have greater historical significance. Bethlehem is, of course, uh, the place where David is from. 
Uh, and uh, it, so it's, it's David's particular city. I mean, sometimes when you hear about David's city, you think of Jerusalem. And that's true insofar as it goes. But David's city, the place where he's from, is in fact this, this tiny place surrounded by sheep fields a short distance away from Jerusalem. Uh, and, uh, and so this is so when you hear the word Bethlehem and the folks hearing Bethlehem would have thought of, of David. Also, uh, in hearing about Ephrathah, uh, this is uh, there's a little bit of confusion here. Maybe this is a distinct location. Maybe this is the region surrounding Bethlehem. Uh, but it's but for the biblical context, you should look at Genesis chapter. Uh, let's see, 35 verse 15. Genesis chapter 35:15. And I need a second to get there myself. Here we go. All right, and here we could see that. Uh, the, the, uh, that Jacob is going from uh, Bethel, and when he was when he went from Bethel, it, it's still some difference from Ephrath. Rachel goes into labor; it's a very hard labor, and uh, she has a son, and this is Benjamin. Rachel dies, and Benjamin is born. Right. And so this, it's kind of interesting that you were talking about uh, times of great wickedness and despair in the, in the earth, but also uh, there's sort of the new life and the rebirth that comes through the gospel. And uh, that is certainly an image that would have been upon uh, the, the minds of Micah's hearers in hearing of Ephraim. And so, uh, uh, but I think that uh, uh, the, the, some of the commentators say that Ephrathah is especially the region surrounding, and then Bethlehem is the specific location. And it is uh, uh, to ev evoke within their minds the coming of the Davidic king, uh, who is not Ahaz, <laughs> but rather the the uh, the king who comes in the might and the in the name of God, as he's about to say. And Micah goes to make that especially clear. Uh, and so, in that sense, that David came out of Bethlehem would have been a type of the antitype, who is Christ, who will come from Bethlehem, be born there, uh, in the, you know, uh, from Mary and uh, be laid in the manger. You mentioned that sometimes when we hear the term city of David, we might think Jerusalem, because that is where he establishes his capital later on. Mm. But I, I think that, I do think that that contrast between Bethlehem and Jerusalem is, is present here in the background because of what you were saying about Ahaz. I mean, Ahaz is reigning in Jerusalem. And so mm -hmm. where is the king going to come from who will not be Ahaz, who will not be, I mean, and, and Ahaz, well, he's followed by Hezekiah, but there's, you know, tons of kings that we could name who reigned in Jerusalem who were as wicked as Ahaz, and some of them were worse than Ahaz. And, and the Lord here gives, through Micah, gives hope to his people by taking them back to where David came from, to, to Bethlehem, to this lowly place. I mean, think you think back to when, Samuel went to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse to find the king who who would be mm -hmm. anointed there and Samuel sees the oldest son of Jesse and he he thinks surely this is the guy and the Lord tells him no you're you're wrong Samuel the Lord looks at the heart and and mm -hmm. they go through the whole list of Jesse's sons who are there and David's not even there he, he's out in the the field watching the sheep which I mean the the shepherding is going to come up here in Micah as well I guess all, all that has to say is that the, the Lord here through Micah seems to be hearkening back to the way that David became king in the first place. And, right. and it wasn't because of who David was 
but rather because of the grace and the mercy that the Lord was going to show to David, which, I mean, you mentioned 2 Samuel 7, and it's the same thought there where, where the Lord reminds David of where he came from, how the Lord brought him out of the sheepfold and made him king. And oh, by the way, David, I'm going to build you a house. You thought you were going to build me a house, David? No, I'm going to build you the house. And, and now by, I guess by mentioning Bethlehem as the source, it, it really does, it draws your mind away from Jerusalem and all the wickedness that's come through the kings there and takes you back to where it all got started with the, the Lord's calling of David and setting up him as king. Yeah, with God, anything is possible. And, and uh, he doesn't, you know, judge or uh, things by the human strength and power. So this is good for us to remember because of the wise men were the ones who followed the star from the east. And where is the first city that they go to expecting to find the king? Well, obviously Jerusalem. And, and here they show their, their worldliness, you know. Uh, but the Sanhedrin, uh, 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 who at Herod's behest, uh, made known to them this, this, this particular promise, uh, pointed the wise men away from where their, you know, fleshly eyes would have brought them in seeking a, a, a king of great power and might. And instead it opened the, the eyes of, of faith, right? To follow the word and trust to Bethlehem instead. And that's where they found their savior and Lord. So Micah draws this contrast. He says, you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, which I assume this is where we get the hymn title, correct? O little town of Bethlehem, I suppose. Yeah. Right? So on the one hand, Bethlehem, you, you would overlook it. No, no magi from the east would have picked Bethlehem as the place to go to look for the king. And mm. yet this is the place the Lord chooses to bring forth his ruler. Keep, keep digging into verse 2 here in Micah chapter 5. Yeah, so here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and first of all, I, 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 I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, so according to some of the commentators, Bethlehem is too small to be counted along, among the clans of Judah, and that's sort of a technical statement. <laughs> you had to have had at least a 1,000 people to be reckoned a clan or a township. <laughs> Bethlehem is less than that. It's like when you drive through here in eastern New Mexico, a tiny town like Tatum or something like that. Now, folks in Tatum, I'm sorry, but you do have a really, really, really tiny town. Or you drive through some other towns and you just see the town marker on the side of the road out here. And you, and it says population like 20. And you look around and there's not even a house. There's no buildings. You're like, where, where, where did, the, where is this town that I'm in the middle of right now? So Bethlehem, I imagine to be something like that. It's, you would forget about it unless the Lord himself had made it famous in the way that you were talking about, that the Lord himself raises up a king for his people in David and then now in uh, his own son. And this is what we want to talk about. From you shall come forth, right? So what he says, from this particular city will come forth for me, right? One who is to be ruler in Israel, which says that the Lord remembers the promises that he's made. This, uh, especially when you talk about ruler in Israel, uh, that should, that would bring to Micah's, uh, hearers' minds the imagery from Genesis chapter, uh, 49 verse 10 and the promise made to Judah that the ruling scepter, uh, would not depart from him. And again, uh, Balaam's, uh, uh, prophecy, uh, that the star will rise from Judah. And again, we, we mentioned the, the, the specific promises that were given to David and his eternal son, 
those, uh, th this is that ruler, right? Everyone that comes before him had, you know, received the, the sort of continuing promises from God that, uh, uh, he is yet to come, but he is certainly coming and he will rule in the place of divine majesty. Now to, this emphasizes, I should say, the human nature of the one who is coming, right? So David had the promise attached to his body that through his line, uh, this great, uh, uh, this great king would come. Just, it was, just as it was said of Judah, and just as it was said concerning the seed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we've got Micah here preaching on all these Old Testament texts, even, I, I think, as you said, taking us back to the promise of the seed in Genesis 3, that, that there is going to come this, this man who will save. And, and we're finding out more about him the, the humanity of this ruler is being emphasized in the first part of verse 2. But I think there's a bit more that's going to come up. And I, yeah. let's let's pick that up on the other side of the break so that we don't have to interrupt that conversation. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, December 17th. We're looking at Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. We've got Pastor Brian Flamey with us. He serves at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. Pastor Flamey, prior to the break, we were looking through verse 2 here in Micah chapter 5. We've talked about the humanity of this ruler who will come from this tiny town of Bethlehem, one who will come from the line of Judah and the line of David from their own bodies. And yet that is not all the prophet has to say here. He also says that this ruler in Israel, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this ruler is to be a man, yes, but he is to be more, it sounds like. Mm, yes, indeed. Uh, I was just reading uh, Chrysostom here, uh, and this is what he says about the you know the, this back half of verse two. He says the prophet shows both his divinity and his humanity, for by saying his going his goings forth are from the beginning, from the days of eternity, he made manifest his existence before the worlds. Right. And, and so this is great. I think that Chrysostom, he he marvels. Uh, we just talked about the, the 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 humanity of the son of David. But Chrysostom says, well, let's first talk about the the divinity of the son of God. And so the Lutherans, as, as well as the ancient church fathers, have seen this 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 uh, statement about his coming forth from of old. And they have immediately associated it with two particular places in the Bible. And the first is Proverbs chapter 8, uh, verses 22 
uh, through 23. And this is concerning the eternal wisdom of God. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. Right. And so here, this is uh, classically in, uh, sort of interpreted by the Christians as speaking of the eternal generation of the son from the father and his and his place in creation that he isn't the that, that he isn't just like an exalted creature that stands over everything. Instead, he is there with God at the beginning of all things before the beginning of all things, crafting and working together in this holy harmony of persons, father and son. Uh, you could follow that in Proverbs chapter 8, by the way, all the way through verse 31. Uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite beautiful. And then, of course, if you were to go to maybe a, a simpler, more blunt statement, go to Psalm, the Psalms in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verse 7, we hear the Father, the voice of the Father, speaking to his Son. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, right? So the Lord the father says to me, the second person, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Luther, of course, when he's reading this text in his own commentary and from his lectures on, on Micah, he says the same. That thanks be to God that we have such a clear passage of Holy Scripture where we would know that the, the king who is born in Bethlehem isn't just another earthly king, but in fact, God himself, but now in human flesh, in fulfillment of the other promises of the incarnation that we've already uh, accumulated from all over scripture, right? Uh, we, if, even if we go back to the very first statement of the gospel in Genesis 3, 15, uh, man is taken out of the equation of the uh, conception of this seed, right? It is something that only God can do. And, and in fact, Gabriel gives us the commentary on that verse by saying he is called holy, the son of God. So, Pastor Fleming, you, you used a, a theological term there, the eternal generation of the son from the father. Help us with that. I mean, that's that's not the way, I, I don't know, nobody else talks that way other than church <laughs> folks. What, what, what does that mean when we say something, like, or, or that the son is, is begotten of the father? What do those things mean? Uh, I, you know what? This is th th this is truly knowledge that's that's just uh, above and beyond me, right? Uh, what I do know is that it is biblical language, and, it, and I've been taught this language by by Saint John the Apostle and Evangelist it, in the very first chapter, which is really a Christmas chapter, and we're building up to it, right? And when you go to church on Christmas Day, your your pastors get to preach from John chapter one, and there you get to hear about. Uh, the word of God, right, became flesh and dwelt among us. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, right? Uh, and this, it, it, he is the only begotten of the father. Uh, and and uh, so the, the generation of the son from the father is stated, at least, you know, by the apostles and by the prophets as a divine fact. Uh, that there is uh, a generation of the son from the father. Uh, but and, and it is what accounts for the distinction of persons between father and son. Uh, I, I, I think so. so I, some other pastors or theologians are better speculators at this th than I am. Right. 
But when we say that God is love, how do we know that, right? It's because the Son of God has made known to us and disclosed to us the heart of the Father, right? And this, this generation from the Father in the person of the Son is, in fact, an expression of his, his pure and, and divine love for all creation, even to the point where he gives his own Son into death to redeem creation when it's fallen into the corruption of, of sin and death. Uh, so, again, <laughs> today I have begotten you. Uh, the Father says that of the Son uh, every single day of time and even above and beyond time, even in, in, uh, even in, you know, in uh, his person before there was ever creation. Uh, it's a divine mystery. I, I stand in awe of it. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. What, what kind of wisdom can you give? No, uh, that, that's exactly where I am, too, which, which is, I mean, th- <laughs> it is a divine mystery. And we use the words that Scripture teaches us to use, lest yeah. in our own speaking we say something false about God, which is, I mean, that, that's where I find, again, texts like you brought up from Proverbs 8, what we've got here in Micah chapter 5, Psalm 2. I thought of Psalm 110, where the Lord says to my Lord, you know, David's son and David's Lord at the same time comes to mind. We we speak in these terms so that we use the words that God has given us or the, the words that the creeds teach us to confess, the Nicene Creed, that he is the only begotten son of the Father of the same substance. Those Those things, we confess those things along with Scripture, even when we have to just stand in awe of them, as, as you said. Uh, the the most the most intelligent pastors included uh, of whom I am not one but but I mean just to to stand in awe of those things and and to you know we use this language because that's what God has given us so we've got Micah chapter 5 verse 2 the prophet says the ruler who is both man and god he's going to come from this tiny town bethlehem hearkening back to what the lord has done through david now in verse 3 you get the word therefore, so something's the conclusion's being drawn, but it seems like, I mean, how do how does verse three connect to verse two? Because I'm I'm not sure that it's it's the easiest thing to follow. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's interesting. So I think that verse two makes more sense with verse three. Would you read it? Uh, would you read it in the context of everything that's come before in Micah's prophecy? Right. And, and so there, there's this coming worldly scattering of the kingdoms of the north and the south, right? Uh, you, you have the, the, the language of remnant. Uh, and uh, so, you, so everybody's thinking about what will become of us in a worldly sense, right? And, and uh, what is the future of God's people here upon this earth? And uh, like I said, so, so the Lord in, 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 in chapter four is describing the messianic kingdom. Then he brings forth. Uh, the, the promise of the coming of the Messiah, both eternally and in time. And now he returns to the sort of previous topic of, of uh, uh, con- concerning God's people, the remnant, and uh, uh, the people who uh, you know, are Abraham's uh, children according to blood. And, uh, and, and so this is, this is something where I, I don't know, I, I read the commentators and sometimes you get the sense like even the commentators aren't sure what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> okay. So, so I, so therefore he shall give them up. Who is being given up? Uh, and I think that th- th- this could possibly be referring to uh, sort of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the afflictions and the sufferings 
of the scattered people of the northern kingdom, right? The, the people in the in diaspora, the, the dispersion. And also speaking about the uh, sort of uh, the tyranny that God's people, even in the south, have to live in uh, after they've been dragged into Babylon. And, uh, and then later, as they have to suffer the, the Gentile rule of the Greeks and then the Romans, right? And so they're at the, so it looks like this whole time they're at the mercy of the Gentiles and yet the Lord has his eye on them. And when the time comes and when the time comes, and I don't think that this is any sort of accident, she who is in labor has given birth and then the rest of the brothers shall return. Who is in labor and who is giving birth? Uh, Luther, was it even Luther? He, he says that this is uh, a speaking of like the church and coming forth from the church is the gospel. And from the, and from the gospel, you have sort of a, a gathering of the people from the, from the nations, right? And this is the, the people of God's chosen people in dispersion, uh, the elect, you know, uh, but I think it's also appropriate. And I'm going to probably step out on a limb to say a, a human birth is spoken of, and that's on purpose uh, because we are speaking of, the Virgin Mary, who is giving birth to a son, and at his birth, I mean, it's really wonderful. One of the very first things that happen is that the, the people who are scattered, that belong to God, that God uh, loves and is elected for salvation, they are gathered to him. These, these magi that come from the east, <laughs> you know, and they are the, the true people of Israel, not by blood, but by, but by faith. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, this text does get quoted, verse 2 gets quoted by Matthew in connection with the Magi, so I think to, to draw them in here is, is quite appropriate. The one, one of the things that I read, and I think this is along the lines of what you were saying, that what's going on in, in verse 3, that, that he shall give them up until the time when she was in labor has given birth, is that the, the prophet here is, is telling the people the reason that the exile is coming, and all of these things that will happen to you, all the troubles that you will go through. Think of the the lament in Psalm 137, for example. The reason that the Lord lets all of these things happen is, is because he wants to bring the Savior of the world, this ruler, from Bethlehem. And, and so all of this is going to happen until the time when Mary gives birth to Jesus for the sake of God fulfilling this promise. That, that God, yeah, that's, which I thought was just a, I, I thought that was a good insight. Um, and I, I think it, it, I think it fits. It does. Absolutely. And this is important. So often we're, we're, we're forced into a, into an unbelieving sort of attitude of thinking that we're at the mercy of the forces of the world, which is absolutely false. <laughs> that everything that happens to us right now is in fact, according to God's good and gracious will is an article of faith that we must cling to just as the people in Micah's time had to cling to it as well when they saw their kingdom being taken away from them, right? And the oppressors coming and beginning to slaughter. And, and, and uh, to that, this very point, you have the, the great Christmas text from Galatians chapter four, uh, where it talks about when the time uh, is fulfilled, right? Not a moment before and not, not a moment after, the Lord sends his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, right? And so the Lord knows what he's doing. He knows the times and the seasons, and he knows uh, his own plans and when to bring them to fruition for our good, for our salvation, for our faith. Hmm. And uh, so I think that that 
So it's true. The Lord says there is going to be a time of affliction and cross, right? But just as surely as the affliction and cross uh, consume your, your thoughts and worries right now, uh, just even with greater certainty, you should look forward to the time when the woman gives birth. And at his birth, he shall gather to himself his people. And not in any sort of worldly sense, you know, uh, uh, like a, a guy rallying his troops in the field, but, but by his preaching and by his word and by faith. Well, that, that last statement, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, I think in in Micah's time, when you, you think about, I mean, they're in the divided kingdom for one thing. There's been yes. this split among the people of Israel. And even, as you mentioned earlier, you know, King Ahaz is currently allying himself with pagans in order to destroy his brothers in, in Israel. Yeah. And so, I mean, a promise like this to the faithful remnant it, and again, as you said, it is it goes beyond the borders of Israel and, and beyond the the bloodline of Abraham. But even in that that context of just that faithful remnant, words like that had to, I think, had to comfort hearts that would have just been distressed to see the faithlessness of a guy like Ahaz. I know, I know. I mean, could you imagine being a, a person living in a country where there's an absolute godless and wicked leader on the throne, and you're thinking to yourself, "What will become of Christ's church now?" I mean, that's the big question of the day. That's what we're asking ourselves right now. And so I think that, that Micah's words ought to be applied to us, you know, uh, that no matter how terrible uh, things may get in seeing this particular, uh, you know, administration say terrible things about, you know, their, their plans to, you know, take away the tax exempt status of the church as if that's really that bad of a thing, you know. <laughs> but even if the even if persecution becomes even more uh, vivid and uh, and painful than that, you know, this is still nothing more than what God's faithful people in the past have endured and what they have endured, in fact, for their good. And the Lord saw it all and he brought it to a happy conclusion, finally, in his, uh, in his son. For them, it was the, the fulfillment of the promise that the, the, the son of David would be born in Bethlehem. And for us, it is the promise that Christ will return suddenly in the clouds and with great glory. Mm. Verse 4, this ruler shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Help us to, I mean, the word shepherd there, this ruler will shepherd, that was a, a common way of referring to the kings of Israel as shepherd. It harkens back to David again, coming out of Bethlehem as a shepherd. Take us into what the prophet says about the ruler in verse 4. Yeah, so to say that he's going to shepherd his flock emphasizes that he is of David's line, and probably in particular the son of David, uh, who will reign eternally over the kingdom. You know, and and uh, it also calls to mind uh, various passages uh, in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapter forty, verse eleven. So in Isaiah chapter forty, verse eleven. Ah, here we go. He will tend. That is the Lord himself who is coming uh, will tend his flock like a shepherd he will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young now this is really important to remember that yes you're right i think the term shepherd had been applied generally to the kings of israel and yet you have this 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 uh, uh this language of shepherding applied to the Lord himself when he comes in which, in which way is he going to come in the flesh, right? And this is, 
part of the joy and the beauty, when you uh, look at the shepherding language of Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord says, I myself will be their shepherd. And he means that quite literally, that he will come among them in their flesh to gather them as a shepherd gathers his sheep. And then you see the fulfillment of that beautifully in Jesus's own preaching in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. And, you know, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus said those words, I am the good shepherd, you have to understand how the people received it. They didn't say, oh, that's a nice fuzzy image. I, I, that sounds nice. No, they were like, they were saying to us, he's calling himself the Messiah. He's saying that he has come to rule God's kingdom eternally. Is this God in the flesh, as the prophet said? This is why the people were going crazy. Like if you look at uh, the other place where you hear about Bethlehem being debated about the origin of the Christ is in John chapter 7. And the people are absolutely divided over what Jesus is saying. You know, is this the Messiah? Why are it, If he's a false Messiah, why isn't he already torn down? What's going on here? So the people are divided. Some are for, some are against, right? And in, in the middle of all of that, Jesus continues his, his work of shepherding, not by, uh, not by grabbing people by the scruff of their neck, even though he did that with his apostles, you know, but, but by extending the invitation of the word. Right. So it's fitting that the word made flesh would also use that same word to do the work of creation of faith in the heart uh, for their redemption. That by faith in what he was going to do in laying his, down his life for the sheep, they would be saved. It's something there at the end of or toward the end of John chapter 10. The people again are seeking to arrest him at that yeah. moment as you said they they understand what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the good shepherd it's also i think worth pointing out that it's toward the end of that good shepherd section where Jesus also says i and the father are one pointing mm. pointing back to some of the things we've been talking about in terms of who this this ruler is here in in Micah chapter 5 that he is both fully man and fully God. And, and Jesus speaks the same way when he speaks of the, the shepherd language there in John chapter 10. Now, so this ruler will stand and shepherd his flock. And again, as, as you said, with those that connection to Ezekiel, who um, he comes after Micah, but, but that yes. same idea of, you know, the Lord himself being this shepherd, again, stands in, in great contrast to the way Ahaz is currently ruling there in Jerusalem and and is you know even better than than David the the greatest king of Israel the, for the Lord to come and be the shepherd this is what the people are longing for the one who will and you you mentioned Isaiah 40 the image there in Isaiah 40 is just fantastic of of how the Lord uses his arm I think that comes right before the shepherd but you know on the one hand he rules with might with his arm and yet, on the other hand, he's also using that arm to gather his flock together. I mean, this this is the shepherd we're looking for, not the not the Ahaz who's scattering the flock and leading them to worship idols, but rather the one who leads. Well, to use the imagery of Psalm twenty three, to green pastures, the green pastures of his word, who invites us to to sit beside his still waters, who sets the table of his of his victory in the presence even of our enemies, that's the one that we're waiting for. And it, it is the Lord who is the shepherd. He is this, again, all of this in Micah chapter 5 is pointing us to the fact that this is the Lord who is coming to rule. And yet he's going to, to be born of a woman there in tiny little Bethlehem. Right. Every doctrine that we confess from the New Testament is found in the Old Testament. Mm. It is certainly true that in the Old Testament, uh, 
the the uh, the sort of the particulars of the New Testament doctrine are perhaps a little bit scattered or veiled, and yet they are there, such that uh, when Jesus adds his word to it, right, and the fulfillment of all of these things in himself and in his person, we can look at the words of the prophets for what they are, right? And, and uh, this is why that we called them prophets. They looked forward in time and they could see the fulfillment of what they were talking about, right? They could see it. And, and, this, and they described what they saw. And in that way, they, they, they were able to, to speak truthfully about what was coming, even if the people at that time still longed for it in such a way that they weren't entirely sure, uh, you know, what the particulars might, what form the particulars might look like, except for the fact that when, when you have uh, a place, Bethlehem, being named with such specificity uh, that, uh, that the Sanhedrin, in consultation with Herod, said, this is where the Messiah will come from. And even when Jesus was preaching and teaching, right, one of the things that was held against him was, well, the Messiah is obviously supposed to come from Bethlehem, and we know that he's a Galilean, so... <laughs> you know, and so there, so there is specificity. There is uh, in the Old Testament, uh, but thanks be to God that also with the fulfillment of all of those promises, we could see that every single point of divine doctrine is included, is is there and present, and uh, and it's it's good for preaching and for teaching and for continually instructing us in the Christian faith, even in the New Testament Church. The prophet concludes this text by saying, "They that is." The people whom the ruler is shepherding, they will dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Take it in these closing words of the text today. Yeah, to, to dwell secure. What does it mean to dwell secure? Does it mean that we're going to, uh, uh, in this New Testament church that is being brought about by the Messiah enfleshed, uh, are we going to be without trouble and persecution and sorrow or pain or cross? No. Uh, that's not what this means. So then what is the security that's being spoken of now? It's the, it's the security of salvation and the perfect reconciliation that has been worked out by this good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep, right? We have that green pasture. We have that access to the father because he has come to die, uh, to atone for the sins of his people. Uh, if you go to the very end, of Micah's prophecy. Uh, I mentioned this. Ha! I mentioned this at the, at, at the beginning, but I think it's good for us to, to, come, to, the, uh, to come to now. Uh, he says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And he will again have compassion for us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Speak about the language of the seed. There you have it. And this is the security that we have, that the sins that stood between us and God have been washed away by the blood of the Messiah. And uh, the, the dividing wall of his hostility, right, that our iniquity uh, uh, had, had put up between us and the Father is now gone. The, the, the gap is bridged through the crucified body of Jesus. Now, this means when we get back into, into Micah chapter five, if I can find my place here. Ah, yes, here we go. Uh, he shall be their peace. Uh, this is uh, repeated in Isaiah chapter 
chapter 9, verses 6 through 17, there he's called what? The Prince of Peace. Another Christmas text. Isaiah and Micah are both preaching very specifically about the birth of Jesus. And then again, you have this same point reiterated by St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, where he calls Christ peace. He is peace. It's no coincidence that when Jesus, the first of Jesus' words from his mouth when he's raised from the dead is, is what? Peace be with you. Christ in his person, who has been crucified and raised from the dead, is now our peace and reconciliation with God, right? You can't have peace and reconciliation outside of the person and work of Christ. But that is what he has become to us, who hear his word and who believe in him. And, and that was the angel song on Christmas, too. I mean, the, in, the, in the Gloria, glory to God in the highest yeah. and peace. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that is what he has... Uh, he comes to bring among us is, is peace. Yeah, fantastic stuff, Pastor Flamy. Pastor Brian Flamy is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico, helping us this morning with Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5a. Pastor Flamy, thanks for being our guest this morning. No problem. Good talking to you. The ruler will come from the town of Bethlehem, not even big enough to make it on the map, and yet that is the place where God brings his ruler, the ruler from the line of David, the ruler who is God himself, God in the flesh to save you and me, Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, who has laid down his life and taken it back up again to be our savior. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.